I would like to do, because the idea is we're discussing uh, cyber cells, whatever that means, right? So my um, attempt to sort of fuel a little bit this debate is to, to, to take, to fragment a bit this notion of self, to, to look at some different perspectives that are also synthetic, from synthetic perspectives, and then try to at least put some of these pieces together in, in, a, in a theoretical framework. Okay, this is a little bit the game. And um, it's always important to understand that there is easy for the person who doesn't have to do it. Right? So that means the fragmentation and the theory is, is really based on things we do, we build. Right? So and I think that's important. So we want to ground our discussion on cyber selves and also have some operational impact. Right? <coughs> think about how we do we really build these things, what are the principles on which they operate. Um, so this is all work by, by my research group. Uh, who runs around in the rating suits most of the time, mm. as you can see. Well, I'm suffering in the office, but it's a happy bunch. Um, so Tony already gave you a little bit of this sort of uh, traditional view, or traditional definitions of, of, of self, right? You can think about the distinction of Freud and the ego, superego, or the, the nicer the nicer distinction that also Tony elaborated right in the morning, so we'll go through that. And also Thomas Messinger's between the weak first-person perspective, the mentally phenomenal self, and the strong first-person perspective, which is, I mean, this is, this is like a non-representational convergence of sensor states. Here we start to have a first level of representation, and here we have a re representation of sort of experience of self. And the key thing for now is that there is this acknowledgement that there are, let's say, levels of self. And this is then raises the question, okay, how many levels do we have? And, how are they interrelated, if at all? Um, so, from the perspective of, let's say, levels of self, I, I want to go from the, from the simplest form of self as I see it to the more complicated one. As we are, are really pursuing it in, in the lab, okay? Um, so, as a first, as a little caveat, of course, we have to keep in mind uh, if we think about the self. That self is also something we attribute to, to objects, which might be social objects or physical objects, as, as soon as we, we know from the um, from our adaptation of the Dilbert experiment well, on obedience, because what we did, we just tried to look at are, are humans willing to shock a robot, okay, uh, if they're instructed to do so. So here we have a, a video. It's in Spanish, but it, it doesn't matter really because you you get the point. So this they, they play a little game with the iPad robot, and the girl is then is then instructed that when the robot makes mistakes to, to push the red button to shock to shock the robot, and she uses a little potentiometer to, to vary the intensity of the shock, and then the robot says I, if you saw right, that, that's Spanish for how ah, you British would say. Uh, 
punish the robot is, is lower than if the robot is more like a computer and has no social cues, which is a very predictable outcome. On the other hand, what I had expected is that people might walk in, having seen plenty of science fiction movies and so on, and know that these are just machines that have no feelings. Right? So, this is sort of a filter we should put on the discussion that we also attribute properties to agents and objects that they might not necessarily possess. Um, and then what we also saw is that quite a number of people who walked out of the experiment uh, halfway because it couldn't handle it anymore. And these were also people who were shocking the robot at the buzzing time was significantly shorter than to those who happily stayed till the end. So <laughs> these two classes of humans, some that like to torture robots and some that don't like to torture humans. Um, but they're all part of the Nick Bostrom superintelligence conspiracy, so don't worry, it's all consistent. Anyway, so what's, what's that subject in the machine? Um, so what I'm going to look at are, are sort of these six levels um, that we also have, have been working on in one way or the other, and then we're going to try to bring them together in some form. And uh, sort of halfway we're going to run out of time. And then it's up to going to solve the problem between alcohol and me. Um, so let's let's start with Ada here. Ada was a was an interactive space we built in 2002 for the Swiss National Exhibition, and it was a, a robot or a space that believed it was an organism that you could enter and interact with with the space. And the space would communicate with you using lights and sounds in a sort of non-symbolic form. Um, and then we have cameras, we have microphones, you know, build up interactions with humans. Of different levels of complexity. Now the space will go up, right? It's just people's space will go up. The space will start to throw people, will send them a cue to these four tiles to see if it's playful. It's just emitting a cue, you'll sit around these people's feet, and you can follow the cue if you're attacked as being a playful agent. And then out of the set of playful agents, the, the space will start to repeat reward upon you to make you more playful. And the top level of reward that you give to a visitor is that they see themselves as a screen or something. But what's interesting about this is that this space, within 10 minutes of interaction, is able to fully control the, the behavior of the visitors, even though they're not instructed to necessarily follow the So, So in one of those objectives 
obvious um, survival. It means the balance of people in space should be of not too many, not too few. Okay? And it can measure this just looking at movement in the cameras and pressure on the floor and so on. Then it wants to be able to, to have a, a recognition of objects in that space. So moving objects have to be consistent in its, in its uh, classification uh, processing. And lastly, it wanted to optimize the ability to have continuous interaction with the agents in that space. So each of these uh, objective functions are translated to specific actions, right, that, were, that emit a back into the space, influencing the visitors, and this is how you look. Go. So what we what we use here, if you want, and we're going to get back to it later, is a notion of a physically embodied system. In this case, it was space that is optimizing very specific functions in the real world um, by changing its interaction with that world based on very specific optimization goals. If you want, in a homeostatic uh, perspective. So in this embodied self. At the other extreme, you also think, okay, how can you retrain the body itself? We, we heard quite a bit today about the rubber hand illusion, uh, body representation, or influence body representation, and we're exploiting that in the clinic. So by now we have treated over 500 patients in a number of hospitals, posed a very simple question. If I now give people ownership over a virtual body, and I'm performing training tasks with that body that my physical body cannot realize, because of, let's say, a stroke. So I cannot move one of my arms so well anymore. If I now project myself in a virtual world, taking ownership of a virtual body, can that allow me to retrain my physical body? And the answer is yes. Um, because the question is, so this is uh, one view on, on the human brain. This is a, a connectome. This is sort of the main, main portions of the neocortex. It's 30,000 elements of the neocortex. That, that have um, 300,000 connections among them. And in case of stroke, you try to think about like, how can I allow this brain to reorganize these connections? And what, you, what we do through virtual reality is that you, by a virtualized embodiment, you, you set up conditions for reorganization of this, of this brain that can translate into functional recovery. That we have also assessed. We have quite some. Um, so we find the patients, analyze in detail, and right now this is sort of the best you can get in, in the clinic anywhere in the world. Uh, it's a better than occupational therapy or physical therapy or any combination thereof, exploiting this idea of, of body ownership using these virtual means. So it means virtuality is not only an interesting tool for, for lab, it can be a very powerful tool for it. But just, of course, the question, what are the principles behind your protocol? Right? It's not that if you throw a virtual reality at people, they get better. Right? That's how you, how you use it. Um, so so this, these are examples of how we are working around an embodied self, how you can control an embodied self um, as an artifact, or how you can manipulate the embodied self or allow an embodied self functional recovery uh, in the real world in the case of humans. Um, then we can think about the spatial self. So here we have a robot that's running around in the lab. It's a high-mobility robot. And here we have a bunch of cells. So this is space. This is Y and X in space. And what we're simulating here is our neurons in the entorhinal cortex, which is the input 
stage to your hippocampus, and the hippocampus you heard a little bit about earlier is a structure that is central for episodic memory, both for spatial cognition. But so what we're modeling here is really the, the spatial sense of, of this robot. These grid cells are relevant for our understanding of space, for planning our behavior in space. And um, so what this gives you, and um, we have done a lot of models of hippocampus that now apply to robots, and we see a little bit later on as well. This gives you another level of self. It is a self in space. So now we have an embodied self in space, which is directly represented by the brain. And this also translates into behavior, because it allows you to plan your behavior in space. Um, so that's my, my second level of self that I want to think about, is the embodied self in space. Now, the next step up is how we're going to tune this embodiment to space. Right? Space is filled with <coughs> obstacles. Space has varying properties. You might have inclines. You might have uh, trash laying around. So how do you tune yourself to that? So these experiments, we're looking at in detail the, the cerebellum. The cerebellum of the little brain sits here in the back. Uh, it comprises about 60% of all learns make up your brain. So those accounts that should be important. And it's actually optimized to learn very specific temporal intervals between input and output events. And learning is driven by error signals. And outputs in this case are actions, like avoidance actions in this virtual maze. And inputs are, in this case, just a little bar. So basically what this robot has to learn is how do I now tune and control the dynamics of my movement in space to adapt to the specific properties of the world I'm in. A priori, your world is unpredictable. You, when you were born, your brain didn't know yet you're going to sit in chairs. Right? The world is filled with these unpredictable elements that you just have to acquire. And what you see here is an approach that you're shaping your action. An action in this case means either a displacement of the body in space or a change of shape, it's conformation. Right? So you, you start to optimize these two physical properties of the body with respect to the world you're in. So another aspect of learning can be how can I predict, uh, how can I emit behaviors and optimize specific goals? In this case, it's again an exhibition, I think it is a random example of the exhibition, where the, the ADA space, the room, was learning how to move people to certain corners that they would usually um, avoid. Turns out humans don't like open uh, entrances. So they would avoid this corner of the space, and we used a learning method where the robot was where the space was going to reward when it would bring humans to this corner that humans would usually avoid. We had to learn cues to attract humans there. And it could do this successfully. So now here you have an artifact that learns to adapt its, its actions with respect to certain goals it has in the world or that optimizes its rewards. Um, you can also apply that to uh, foraging robots that run around in the world that contain obstacles and rewards, uh, where the robot might learn certain habits, um, optimizing the, its exploitation of the environment that it exists in. And then what, what you can also look at is that, of course, what it has shown that these habits in turn can shape perception. So it's not that all learning processes you have to think of in these contexts 
It must depend on physical processes, direct physical processes, and not just the interaction loops with the world and habits. So these are examples of what you might call an epistemic self. This is the self that, equipped now with mechanisms of learning and memory, engages the world and acquires knowledge of that world. And this knowledge will become incrementally more unique because the interactions with the world will be strongly individualized. Especially, especially if you take into account this, this behavioral feedback loop I talked about. So I think that the third level of self we have to consider is that the self, the, the knowledge that the self acquires from its interaction with the world. So if you take in this ADA exhibition visited by 500,000 people, once we switched it off after six months, you, you killed a unique piece of knowledge, which you will never regain again, because I'm sure you're going to run this uh, exhibition again. Okay. It was just too painful, but still, there were unique, there was unique knowledge if you want in that system. Um, now we can go to, to our next level, which is the social interaction. So even if you're getting the icon for a little bit. Do you want to play music? Yeah, sure. Now this robot is autonomously yeah. interacting with me. Let's try something with it. Okay, show me. And the whole question here is how do I maintain this dynamic interaction over extended periods of time? So, um, to build such a robot, you have to equip with quite some capabilities. Right? So, I'll list, I'll list some of them here for the computers. Starting with motivation, that the robot must have an initial drive to engage with the world and the social agents in that world. Um, well, you can read it for yourself. To highlight a few things, we have to learn from those interactions, you have to learn rules of interaction, rules of games. Rules that other humans do. To engage with humans, you have to be able to share attention, to read their mind, to read their intentions, and so on. I mean, it, it is really quite a jump to interact with the physical world and then engage the social world. The social world is definitely more complex because social objects, like John here, another student, have hidden states that they don't advertise to you. Right? So you have, you have to have, you need a whole new set of cognitive capabilities to engage with that world. But on the other hand, you can also have social interaction with, let's say, avatars, which you see here, it's in this phone game. This is our experience induction machine where humans interact with other humans or with virtual virtual objects. With the other hand, humans are also happy to interact just with blobs on, on this floor. That's why we speak of social salience. It's more a graded salience you talk about with, with social, with other agents. So other agents 
might become more convinced that Asian is when they have more image, more social cues, like they might have a face and a facial expression, but as soon as you have a blog that is regulating its proxemics relative to you, this is in itself still a convincing social cue you can interact with and treat as an agent. That's what we show in these days in these, uh, these experiments. So that means we have a social self to consider uh, beyond this epistemic self that has acquired knowledge of the world. Um, then here, this is a performance which is called Repercurso. And the point of Repercurso is that here we want to look at how do I structure, if I now acquire knowledge about the world, how do I structure that knowledge towards the outside world? Do I just, let's say, emit signals in terms of the salience of the cues that come in? Or do I have to impose a certain narrative structure to, to provide the outside world with the comprehension of what I am about? Okay, so in this case, we built as a first experiment the performance around it, so we have two, two human performers interacting with six artificial or synthetic agents, including this, this avatar. Um, and now this has taken another shape where we're starting to deal with an iCub robot. This is a demo we just built for the IROS uh, robotics conference that was in Hamburg a few weeks ago. The sound quality is not great, I'm sorry for that. But, but what the robot does is about active or proactive tagging. So the robot is now reporting to the human user, the monitor standing in front of it, but it doesn't know what it's looking at. So it's able to communicate to the human its internal epistemic state. You know, look, this is an object I don't recognize. Or it can say, where is that object? So this raises this whole question not only of having an agent that has knowledge, but it's also how do I report that knowledge to the outside world to make it comprehensible and efficient? And this is for me a core element of the narrative. Set. And this is part of the research project, which Tony is also a member, and Tony is also the program. So that was the narrative self, and then last is the cultural self that we're going to start with.
2050, what do I show them in school class to communicate with them Nazi crimes and Holocaust? What's the information we want to get across? But how do we capture this and how do we transmit it efficiently? So, what we're doing here, so we use augmented reality in virtual immersive environments on site to again show the space in reconstruction. But then to use space and this navigation in space as, as a way to, to present, to make it a portal to information on, on Holocaust. Okay, I'm not saying it's a, so this is how we, but, but the big struggle we have here is really, it's not necessarily a story about a single camp or about victims or about single victims like I'm trying to be, how do you capture and communicate Let's say main messages of that period, so that we, as a future society, might learn from that. It, it's an unanswered question, but I think it's a very deep one, and it's a rather important one because also certainly for Holocaust commemoration, the last witnesses are now reaching an age that they will soon die, and then the living memory is really gone. So now we still have a chance to do something, and uh, we're largely not doing it. So it, it's an important one. So this defines this cultural self, the, the cultural environment in which we are embedded. The cultural environment has hidden norms that we have to extract, but it also has again yet its own history, right? That that, that we want to preserve and, and cultivate. So, so I gave you examples now of how in our own work we really deal with now these these six different levels of of self. And these are levels that I think are relevant when we describe the psychology of the selves of biological systems, but also the selves of synthetic systems, the cyber selves that we want to that we want to understand and build. So how can we put this together um, in a comprehensive way? So can we get now to a unified theory of self that can help us to bring these pieces together? Is it, is it feasible? Should it be a goal or is it or should we let's say Consider the fact itself is not monolithic. For instance, here it's a classic experiment proven in Luning, which is called unskilled and unaware of it. And basically, you ask college students to solve problems, and then you ask to report how confident they are. And what you see is sort of anti-correlation between perceived ability of people here in black and their actual ability. So those who are really incapable of solving the task actually report to be very confident. And we actually we replicate this experiment every year for the last 10 years with our own students, which is sort of a sad, a sad observation. Also, it's not something very fundamental about the psychology of self. It's not necessarily monolithic. Right? Our capabilities, what we can do as agents, might be beyond the grasp of the metacognition we have about our own performance. And also, on those grounds, people like Dan Wagner and others have, for instance, proposed that this experienced self might actually not be really the cause of our behavior. I don't agree with this statement, but it is a challenge that we have to take into account. There is this question, is self monolithic? Or is it, let's say, a, a combination of processes that are competing, or as our friend Dan Lennon would say, it's just a story you tell about yourself, but for the rest it's, it's nothing, a happy phenomenon, or also Thomas Messier would say. But I think that's a very nihilistic, it's a little bit of a cop-out, it's too easy. Because if you have to build the machine, you have to deal with the six levels that I just showed you. You might not agree in all six, right? but you have to get the robot to do something in the world. 
And then you can say, oh, well, this is the robot telling the story about itself. You don't program machines like that. That's how philosophers program each other, but I can tell you that's not how you can program a robot. Um, so can we get to our unified theater of self that it explains these, these features that can make useful and testable predictions and that can control? I mean, these are standard requirements for theory. Control means translate it to the real world. Not tell a nice story that you buy from each other when you're physically drunk. Okay? Really build it. So, uh, so we have to see here, Tony, how much time do we have to, uh, to actually learn zero. how to work? Zero. Time. What do you mean zero? It's <laughs> how the brain works. Huh? No, okay, so what I, what I want to show to you, um, maybe a little bit two minutes, um, is basically how we, so I, my theory is the brain, basically goes through the body, because it's four main layers, body, brainstem, reactive systems, adaptive layer, uh, state space acquisition, like the cerebellum, the amygdala, campus, all sits here, and then these are memory systems, more for executive control and planning, more premolar prefrontal areas, basic ganglia, would, would start to fit at this level. Um, but across these layers, in this multi-layer architecture, and it's this architecture that's been driving all the technologies you've seen. All the examples I showed you are based on this. If it's, it's wrong, it doesn't matter. This is what we follow in programming all these things. And the key thing is, across these layers, you have three columns, which is systems dedicated to processing states of the world, states of self and states of action. And action is the interaction between the world and the self. And what I wanted to show you in the time I don't have is how this action, this self column, like here we map the hierarchy or the, the architecture to, to, to the rodent brain. We have a coherent model now that shows how these brainstem structures of self that regulate, automate are providing a grounding for the high-level goals around which we plan and expect behaviors in the world. Okay. And this goes back to detailed models we have built between the brainstem systems and premotor cortex. And let's just, um, well, let's not look at this, but let's look at this instead. One second. Um, so basically, what you're missing out on now, but I'll tell you by the beer, is essentially that we have a coherent architecture that is controlling foraging behavior in the robot. Admittedly, a foraging robot is not necessarily immersed in a culture, okay? But it is definitely exercised the first four layers of, of self I delineated. And so what we show here now is how these, these epistemic systems, the spatial self, the embodied self, uh, work together to give you coherent behavior. So what that would mean is that the self as such is also a hierarchical, hierarchically structured system that, however, is tightly coupled. So you cannot just say it's, these are different modules of self. They're tightly integrated modular systems or layers in an architecture that then collectively give rise to what we at the outside call this manifestation of the self of the agent. So, um, so, and what I showed you is that 
Um, in terms of the cells column in our system, we believe we have a coherent structure from embodied to a narrative self, um, including the spatial self. However, what we have shown is that the social self is actually decomposable in these different components. I, I didn't go into detail that. And the element that we haven't really understood yet or not touched upon yet is this cultural self. However, I do believe we can enter into that domain by acknowledging that culture in the end is also translating in an understanding of the world. It's just a world that contains complex hidden states. <coughs> so, and therefore, I would claim or conjecture today, but we have to test this idea, that these five ingredients should be sufficient to also give rise, let's say, a culturally tuned uh, understanding of, of agent behavior, whether they're biological or synthetic. Thank you.